Hello, everyone. I'm David Woods-Hale, Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber, and you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. Over the past two years, as we've grown accustomed to remote and now hybrid ways of working, cybercrime has perhaps unsurprisingly been on the rise. Research from Doherty Associates found that a small business falls victim to a hack every 19 seconds and that a whopping quarter of employees have inadvertently been responsible for a cyber breach within their own organisations. So, as we move forward in this ever uncertain new way of working, how can employers secure the buttresses of their cyber forts and minimise their cyber risks? I'm delighted today to be joined by Terry Doherty, CEO of the tech firm Doherty Associates, which authored the report, Who Moved My Moat, to build some virtual armour in the battle against the cyber criminals. Well, Terry, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today for the podcast. I thought it might be useful if we kick off with you perhaps telling us a little bit about yourself and your career to date. Yeah, sure. And thanks for having me, David. Um, so I grew up in uh, on a farm in a rural New Zealand. You can probably pick that from my accent. Um, my career in IT started in New Zealand and uh, kind of focused in uh, a the retail point of sale space. So basically uh, tools, uh, computerized tools in, in stores. And because New Zealand is quite a small uh, environment, um, you know, we covered lots of different types of industries from appliance stores to fashion outlets, et cetera. In my early 20s, like lots of Australians and New Zealanders, I travelled to Europe and uh, uh, spent some time, well, spent most of my time in London and, and uh, uh, got a job working for an uh, IBM uh, agent in uh, West London who also had a part of the business which was in retail point of sale. And so that kind of was the connection for me. Uh, and I worked for them for about three years. Uh, it was in the late 80s, right at the end of the 80s, quite a difficult time. And uh, that company actually in the early 90s, the beginning of the 90s, uh, they they failed. The business failed. It had been around for quite some time and it failed. They struggled to uh, uh, make some changes and, and uh, that presented me with a with a with a decision uh, was I going to go back to New Zealand or did I uh, think that uh, I should look for another job and the other thing I considered was starting uh, something myself I mean one thing that I fell in love with in the UK was the enormity of the opportunity certainly compared to uh, the country I grew up in uh, and so I decided to um, f- uh, start uh, the business that I have today, which so that's 30 years ago. So a lot's changed in that time. 100%. I think it's really interesting that you're, you're talking about a gap in the market because nowadays it seems so normal to, to have remote technology support, which is obviously what your organization, Doc, Doherty Associates, does. But 30 years ago, I imagine it must have been more difficult to, to spot that gap in the market and to, to convince um, employers and organizations there was a need for remote support. So could you tell me a little bit more about the story behind that? Yeah, sure. So uh, absolutely. In, in, in that time, in kind of the early 90s, uh, remote support was something which was, was quite challenging, uh, mostly because of communications. If you think way back then, we didn't have the kind of uh, pervasive internet that we have today, of course. Uh, and uh, so typically support was telephone based. And uh, if you wanted to do remote support, it was, it was in the kind of modem days. Now, we had an opportunity and, you know, I, I've learned over the years 
is that business is, is, is a lot of luck, some good and some bad. I guess it's what you do with it that really matters. Uh, we'd been doing some work for some larger oil companies and, and so on around really robust uh, server technology. So this was pre-cloud. So organizations that had really critical applications and things like banking apps or finance apps. Uh, and we'd developed quite a lot of skills around that kind of technology. It was in it was something called Novell. It was in the in the pre-Microsoft server days, believe it or not. And we developed quite a lot of expertise around that. The manufacturer of that software one day contacted us and said, we've got something a little bit unusual and wondered if you might be interested. And it was, they had cruise ships. So if you imagine a cruise ship is, uh, and just to clarify, so the cruise ship space that we were looking at is what they call medium-sized cruise ships, which basically means less than 1,500 passengers, quite often owned by high net worth individuals. Um, and they'd had a number of cruise ships who had deployed this technology. Now, the technology was great, but it wasn't very tolerant of not being set up almost perfectly, one well, fact perfectly. <laughs> if it was set up perfectly, it was really robust. If it wasn't, it was arguably less reliable than, than a standalone server. They'd had a number of cruise ships who had had the technology deployed and uh, the reliability was a challenge. So we had an opportunity to go and, uh, well, we met with a, a, uh, the owner of this, this cruise line uh, vessel. And uh, long story short, we went to visit the vessel, did some analysis, came back and said, we think we can make this really stable. You need to do a few things. And we did that. Uh, a few weeks later, um, everything was going well. And the owner of the vessel contacted us and we went and had a meeting with them. And he said, look, Great that we've been able to make the environment more stable, but really my challenge with technology is not the actual technology. It's that I have a cruise ship. Every passenger cabin is revenue for me, quite a lot of revenue. And at the moment, I've got cabins being used by IT people. How do I get the IT people off the ship? Now, a ship is a pretty hostile computing environment. Uh, it generates its own electricity. It moves about quite a lot. There's salt air. And even if you own a helicopter, there's lots of places on the planet where a ship might be that you can't get to it. So that was quite a challenge for us to think, right, how could we create uh, some technology which could remotely control all of the technology on board, a mission-critical environment that runs 24-7. And this particular vessel went to Antarctica. So even, you know, imagine if it, something happened in the middle of Antarctica, it's almost impossible to get to. So we set to thinking about how we develop some software and some process and a bunch of other things that we could use to remotely manage this environment. It took us about a year and a half uh, until we had the confidence to start uh, uh, taking people or IT people off the ship or actually redeploying them to the shore side. And um, that really began the journey for us. Um, and uh, we continued to hone that technology. And then the truth is that technology became quite pervasive. Today, it's commonly referred to as remote management and monitoring tools. Um, so that really began our pedigree into that early stage of remote management in, a, in what is quite a, a, a striking environment in terms of cruise ship 
Uh, it was great for us, a great story to tell, particularly for people in London. We, In fact, we had a campaign which we called Tested in Antarctica Available in London. And the sales pitch was quite simply, if we can manage a cruise ship that might be in Antarctica down a satellite link and you're in central London, maybe 20 minutes away by tube at the end of an internet connection, we think we can do a great job for you. I mean, I think that's a fantastic story and a brilliant marketing message that I think a lot of people would kill for. But um, <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, like if you think about, you know, diversifying, for want of a better word, into new sectors like, you know, um, private equity finance, they're going to be seeing their challenges completely different to those being faced by people working on board a cruise ship in Antarctica. How did you sort of work to, to convince these organizations um, of your pedigree? And, and did you have to really diversify your product to make it work there? Uh, and that's a really good question. I mean, I guess if you think back to the reason we first moved towards cruise ships, it was because of our deep expertise in mission critical server technology. Um, and actually, that was the thing that still got us a seat at the table in, in prospective clients like top 10 law firms or uh, private equity uh, environment where actually they really valued uptime. You know, the cost of, of outage was, 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 was important for them. The cruise ship story actually, I think, just made us a little bit more topical in the South situation is the truth. But for the smaller, so for if you're a, you know, if you're a very large, a top 10 law firm, then you've got your own IT department. And so we were not really competing for, for that kind of business there. We were looking for what is pretty well pure consultancy, architecture, design, that kind of work. But we were able to use the pedigree and the experience that we had, the credibility, if you like, in those large environments and bring those together with our real expertise around remote management and the messaging I talked about earlier. And that allowed us to find an opportunity for these smaller clients. Where that came from was, you got to remember, this started back in the, in the 90s. It became clear to me that... A lot of those smaller organizations, particularly in London, and I would say London's probably one of you know three or four global locations who've got a high density of these kind of firms, they were not large enough to attract the big players. They were willing to pay a premium for quality, and they really did understand the value of really good technology, really good IT, and that really, for me, I guess, shone light on this potential gap in the market. Smaller organizations, maybe 30, 40 people, sometimes smaller, sometimes larger, who were, were really looking for and willing to pay for quality technology, high uptime, really responsive support. That's really how that kind of those two, the, the early stage expertise together with the messaging around remote support um, uh, allowed us to penetrate that, that private equity space. There's also another quite interesting uh, connection is, believe it or not, um, we, through that, we had that tested in Antarctica campaign that we ran and we got a call one day from a gold mining company based which head office in london and they said so if you can do cruise ships does that mean you've got expertise in satellite communications and that that 
led to a conversation which meant that we were able to help them with satellite communication uh, performance improvement, which is uh, satellite comms are very expensive. We had deep expertise, which we had developed with the cruise ship business. And what was really interesting was they then said, so we also have a challenge with attracting really good quality technical people to go to places like, for example, the Democratic Republic of Congo and work. Uh, so can you help us with remote management of these complex systems without having to have IT people necessarily uh, attracted to work in unusual places like that? So, yeah, there were, as is quite often the case with these things, there are threads which connect together. Absolutely. And I think, you know, over, what, 28 years, you built up your business, you're working using this emerging technology i think it's interesting to to sort of reflect on what you said around the cloud because i remember even sort of 10 years ago i was writing about the cloud like it was the specter that was going to completely revolutionize um how business operated and people were frightened and then we sort of came very comfortable with it and all that it brought and then we moved into the covid era in 2020 and things changed pretty much overnight and i think that you know Certainly in, in Ambition, we've written a lot about how business schools are changing, changing their strategies in terms of how they teach and educate and how leaders are changing their strategies and organization in terms of how they're moving into a hybrid and more remote world. So it's all super exciting with that respect. But we're here today to talk about your research, um, which is entitled Who Moved My Moat, where you talk about remote and hybrid working and some of the challenges around IT that that brings with it. Before we delve into, I suppose, the more detailed parts of the report and really look at some of the issues that it throws up, I thought it might be um, interesting to, to, to take a step back, really. Um, and if you could sort of tell us what you're perceiving to be the biggest challenges that, that firms are facing as they move into this um, more hybrid and remote world. Yeah, sure. I think firms are, uh, are facing um, similar challenges um, and I think we've all seen it across the workforce over the you know last almost two years now during the pandemic, which problem one was there was an almost overnight shift to remote working for organizations that had been and particularly in the in the kind of financial services, you know private equity ecosystem type uh, environment where they'd had a paradigm of everyone coming to a office probably somewhere in the West End or in the city, uh, high-quality security in terms of firewalls, sometimes soundproof uh, meeting rooms, and everyone congregated there. And that, if you like, was the castle surrounded by the moat, which was the security and the firewall. And that was the paradigm that had worked for, for many years. And then almost overnight, everyone had to decamp from the office and go and work from home, as we know. So I think there were two kind of big things that happened. Firstly, um, some firms who had already made a quite significant shift to the cloud found that journey relatively painless. Others found it more challenging as some of the systems that they uh, had weren't well designed for remote access. Uh, and in that case, it was a poor user experience for uh, their people. Uh, in some cases, and quite a lot of cases, it actually required lowering the security bar to make things work. Uh, 
Um, and in many cases, it created challenges that uh, individuals, employees had to make decisions about what they needed to do just to get things done. So I think that created lots of lots of challenges for people, not least of which everyone was coping with the uh, the pandemic itself and all the all the difficulties that that was presenting. And at the same time, they were trying to keep doing their work. Yeah, I mean, like I say, it was it was completely unprecedented, and I think it was so sudden that we we went from a very office focused economy to remote essentially overnight. Now, the next question. I'm going to ask seems like a bit of an obvious one, but I'd be interested to sort of hear your insight in this. So the news pages have been reporting on and on over the past 18 months, an increase in cyber attacks on on organizations. Is it simply that people are working from home and their firewalls aren't as strong or they're not using VPN that's leading to an increase in the number of cyber attacks that we're experiencing? Or is there something more deeper than that? I think there are quite a number of things. I mean, I think uh, firstly, uh, as I've said already, a lot of organizations um, had to make changes and sometimes those changes were really compromising some of the security that they'd got used to purely to accommodate uh, their users being able to get access to and utilize important systems. I know early on we really struggled as an organization to get traction about the the risks that some of our clients were taking. Um, And and I know we had lots of conversations internally about why we we couldn't, you know, kind of get traction on, do you realize that what you're doing might be allowing you to work, but you're actually taking a bunch of risks? You know, people were using personal computers, which had no antivirus and things like that on them. And we we really worried about that. And, and then we kind of had a bit of a lights on moment, uh, which, which uh, you know, really, uh, we, we almost felt a bit embarrassed about when we figured it out. But in those early days, most of us were worried about you know, actually, our loved ones and what would happen if 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 if, if some of our loved ones may have uh, fallen victim to 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 COVID or caught it, etc. You know, people were dying, and so suddenly, you know, it, for us, we kind of thought, wow, actually, when you think about it, it's probably not that surprising that we were struggling to get the attention of people around the risks they were taking because the risks to their personal. Uh, you know, their personal lives were so much greater that it dwarfed all of that. So that was our kind of first bit. And and so over, of course, over time, as things started to 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 you know, become clearer and and vaccinations and and you know there was a, we could see a path forward. Then many of our organisations uh, started to wake up to that. But before that, that's we 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 asked ourselves, is it just us who are kind of finding that our clients were taking risks or their risk appetite seemed to have increased? And that's why we commissioned our report. We wanted some validation. We wanted some empirical evidence that 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 either confirmed or somehow suggested that our clients were different to the norm. Of course, the research really confirmed what what we already knew that uh, from our clients that people were taking risks. And I guess there are there are a bunch of things. I've already said it. Firstly, a lot of people were using personal devices to do work. 
and they all had the best intentions. Frankly, these people were just trying to get work done from the environments that we were all forced to work in. And as you've already uh, alluded to, many of those environments are home environments. The Wi-Fi is maybe not secure, maybe even you know default passwords or, um, as I've said already, personal devices. But the other thing, of course, is the bad guys, the cyber criminals, were not asleep. They were thinking, wow, there's a whole bunch of new softer targets that we could start to uh, exploit. Um, and we saw a very quick increase in the kind of telephone scams and the social engineering. And then, of course, that started to move to more sinister methods of, of exploiting these vulnerabilities. There's so many issues in there. And I think that you're absolutely right. And I think it's undeniable. I have friends that literally on the Monday went to work, took the took their laptops home with them. And that was that. They've not been anywhere near the office in, in nearly two years. And mm. I think there was, um, you know, obviously COVID and all the issues that that brought in terms of health and well-being. If we park that for a second, people were really keen to make sure they were getting their work done. Lots of people were putting being put on furlough. And I think there was that sort of, um, there was a, a very initial sort of panic stage where people were very keen to, to make sure they were doing business as usual. And sadly, I think in a lot of cases, perhaps, um, issues such as data protection or cyber risk didn't factor in in the heads of a lot of people when they were sort of in panic mode. I think that, you know, in fairness, you know, we've talked about bad habits of employees, which are not necessarily any fault of their own. That's, you know, a sign of the times really. Mm. Um, and using um and using personal devices, we've discussed that a little bit as well. But I was fascinated to see in the report that a small business is on average hacked every 19 seconds or with one small business is, is successfully hacked every 19 seconds. Now that I found quite disturbing because, um, well, for obvious reasons, but, but namely because, you know, when you hear about data breaches and hacking, you imagine that to be huge organizations with, you know, lots of data and, and financial information. And I think a lot of SMEs think that they're perhaps safe or invisible from the hackers. So, you know, you know, why is it that, that there is so much of this damage happening to smaller businesses and how can SMEs, I suppose, protect themselves when their employees are working remotely? I think it's a really good point, David. Um, and the answer, is, there's, there's obviously lots of aspects to it, but the, the kind of overarching reason that we're seeing a real increase in the number of smaller organizations being falling victim is because the larger organizations have woken up to the risks that they've taken. They've got more resources to spend on better cybersecurity. And quite frankly, they're just making themselves harder to, to, to breach. Um, while they, you know, they know that they've got a lot more to lose, and the bad guys know that actually that's a big prize if they can get to them. But certainly the smaller uh, organizations still sadly have the mentality that it won't happen to them. And often for lots of reasons, including they might not have the resources, they just don't do enough to protect their environment. And that includes not just having good security, uh, firewalls and software and all of those things, but also in terms of training and awareness of their people. And if you think that that people are working from home, so already the bar is lowered. Um, and so, you know, that is one of the reasons why the smaller organizations are increasingly falling victim. They're just a softer target and the bad guys are exploiting that. 
I hear that. Another another really striking finding that I, I read in the report was that a quarter of employees have experienced or indeed caused a data breach since working from home. And I think that's incredibly disturbing. But I suppose two questions connected to this. On, on one hand, h- how is this happening? Is it due to lack of adequate GDPR training or um, you know, the, the reasons that we've already discussed? And on the other hand, how do you think this sort of stress and worry about data that they might have on their devices is impacting well-being um, and I suppose, you know, the, the stress levels of employees really more than anything else. And is a this sort of a two-pronged approach that employees should be taking to ensuring the safety of their data, but also trying to sort of reassure and protect employees when they're when they're sort of worried about these issues? Yeah, two good questions. So the first one being, uh, uh, you know, basically a quarter of people had uh, done things which would constitute a breach. Um, I think Many of those were simply good intentions, but uh, they didn't really have the levers to pull on. So they they were, you know, for example, sending unencrypted confidential information, which they shouldn't have across the public Internet. And again, as I say, in that certainly in those early times, this was really just to get work done. They didn't they didn't have either the training many times they were just unaware of, of of the risk they were taking and of course the other reason is is falls back to well there are many of them just that the the the, the mechanisms the safety the safeguards that they have in place were lacking and were exploited I think what was also interesting about that uh, that statistic was that actually the IT decision makers, the people in charge of IT, didn't believe, they didn't realize that that was happening in their organizations. So they had a view of the world which suggested that fewer breaches were happening. But if you uh, align that with some of the responses from the people, then they were taking actions, as I've said, not necessarily, certainly we, we don't think in, in, in many cases, if any, maliciously, but really they were doing things which would have constituted a breach. And certainly in terms of compliance, I think that is a big area in the legal and the, and the, and the financial services space. Of course, we know that the regulators were probably a bit more willing to be accepting of the, of the exceptional circumstances, but we know, of course, that that's not going to continue as well. So I think most of these things were people trying to get work done. In terms of the well-being, I think that's a really also really interesting question. I think again, initially, people were not so concerned. They were, had bigger, bigger concerns around the whole uh, pandemic that was going on. But I do feel, and we're starting to see that individuals who, of course, are becoming, as we all are, aware that actually the, the risks, the cyber risks, the cybersecurity risks are increasing. And I think without adequate uh, awareness training and certainly constant awareness training, that is making some of the you know uh, individuals, I think it's, it's, it's placing uh, quite a lot of strain and concern, certainly for people who are very conscientious and are concerned about uh, the, the data that they uh, have responsibility for, either as individuals or on behalf of their organizations. So I do think that is something, and I do think organizations Hopefully, and I think we're seeing it as well, waking up to the fact that actually they need to support their people with with both training and also ensuring that they're putting in place the mechanisms and the safeguards to help them do the best work properly, no matter where they are, 
in terms of, you know, are they working from home or somewhere in between, but without that technology getting in the way of them doing work. And that's quite a challenge from a technical standpoint, but those are the things that organizations need to turn their attention to. I think, you know, we, we've talked a lot about people working from home and and issues there and their own devices and over the, the sort of COVID period of the past well, nearly two years. Looking forward, um, I think I think it's really exciting that we're going to be moving into a more hybrid and and new normal, I suppose, for want of a better term, way of working. But that brings with it new problems. So there's numerous sites where people are going to be based. So they could be at home. They might be in the office. They might be in between. They might be working um, when they're on a train on the way to work or lots of different options for them to consider in terms of their actual workplace. And the idea of the workplace is, is not the same as what it's what it has been. And it's probably never going to be the same again. So this is going to represent another significant shift as we sort of move into 2022 and how organizations need to act, interact with their cybersecurity moving forward. How do you think that organizations should be thinking about this now strategically in terms of future-proofing themselves for the next phase? Yeah, a great question. Um, I think we, we see it in, in kind of three areas. So if we take go back to the, the, the moat concept, the castle and moat, and thinking that, you know, it was easy to, well, easier to keep the crown jewels safe in an office with, with all the, the, the technology and firewalls, et cetera. But now the air, we call that the edge, if you like, the perimeter, where the firewall uh, gap, puts the gap between the public internet and the internal network. The edge is now every individual and every device they work on, and it doesn't really matter whether they're in the office in Starbucks or at home or on the train or anywhere in between. So organizations need to think, and, and we've kind of coined it as being secure and optimize the edge. So secure the edge by making sure that all of the places and the devices that your people, your employees are working from are secure but optimize ensuring that they've got the right tools. Those tools are designed to help your people do their best work securely, but without the security unnecessarily getting in the way. So things like multi-factor authentication do require interaction from users, but there are lots of other security um, uh, mechanisms that, that can be put in place in a, in a largely automated way that can help protect information without putting undue uh, um, strain on the user. So think about securing and optimizing the new edge, which is well beyond the boundaries of the office. And then we uh, slightly, uh, uh, interestingly, have a term which we call serverless office. So if you think back to the days when, you know, uh, certainly financial services and most organizations that have a, a, a room where they had uh, servers whirring away, and now, of course, many of them have got their own data centers, actually, that concept, those legacy applications, which typically ran in those kind of environments, they were the weak link early on in the pandemic. Those were the things that generally required a lowering of the security bar to get access to those systems. It might be the finance system still ran on a server in the office, for example. So our view is that you need a strategy to 
get rid of as many of those servers as possible. By definition, we're saying move that that functionality into the cloud. The cloud will do a number of things, but primarily what it will do is give you many more security options, so give you more levers to pull on in terms of making that application more secure. And importantly, because it's in the cloud, it's more likely to deliver a much better experience for your users no matter where they're accessing it from. So they don't have to come to the office for it to run really well. They can run it on their iPad or their laptop from home or anywhere in between. And then the final piece really is once you've got those first two uh, sorted out, then you need to turn your attention to how do you enhance productivity in the new way of working, this hybrid model. So think about things like what processes could you digitize? Where could you introduce automation? and of course, data and insights. What what info, you know, data is an asset. How do you drive insights from the information you have either within your organization or in other, other places? And then of course, certainly in the financial services and regulated space, think about compliance and governance. I think one really important thing to remember is you can be secure and yet not compliant. And equally, you could be compliant, but not necessarily secure. So you need to think about those things. So those are the areas which we think organizations need to be thinking about. That's brilliant advice. Thank you very much. Just to finish, I'm going to end on a, on a hopefully a, a bit of a lighter note. Um you talked a little bit about insights that you can gather from data and technology. And I know that you're quite passionate about the the levels of creativity that technology can enable us to have and how we can really use technology to be more innovative and, and do exciting things. So you're a person with your ear very close to the ground in the tech space. What are you sort of excited about in terms of the creativity that technology is going to allow us to achieve over the next year? I think, um, what is available to people today uh, in terms of the cloud technology, the applications, the devices that they're running? If you think what you can do on your on your phone, your smartphone, your iPad, your, your laptop. I mean, one thing, if you just go back one decade, which is not very long, and you think about organizations like maybe BP or British Airways and the, and the investments that organizations of that size were making in technology, a small organization with 10 people can now be using the very same technology if they have cloud, you know, they consume cloud products from people like Microsoft, et cetera. They've got that same capability. They've got those tools that they can put into the hands of of their people. And if you think about the entrepreneurial spirit that comes out of organizations, startups, and they've got the very same power that organizations thousands of times their size have. So the cloud has democratized, I guess, access to the best technology. So when I think you can uh, merge that kind of capability in such an affordable way with the energy and inspiration that comes from many of these startup organizations, I think we're already starting to see some of the fruits of that. Amazing. That's a brilliant place to finish. Terry, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Really appreciate your insight and um, your practical advice as well. So thank you. Thank you, David. It's been uh, great talking with you. And if you want to read the report, Who Moved My Moat, you can find it at www.doherty.com. 
www.cybersecurity.co.uk. Or alternatively, there's a wealth of information around cyber risk and how you can better prepare yourself at www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition.